The sermon text is Jeremiah 9, verses 17 to 26, and you can find it on page 412 in the paper Bibles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the morning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How are we ruined? We are utterly shamed because we have left the land because, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the words of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord. The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let, it, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, for the last few weeks, we have been looking at Jeremiah's prophecy against the nation of Judah. And specifically, we've been looking at what it tells us about the nature of sin. A lot of times when we think of sin, the thing we tend to think of is simply doing bad things. But what we've seen over the last few weeks is that sin is more than that. Sin is something deeper. Sin is something more comprehensive. And as we've looked at these little sections of Jeremiah, I think it's been six weeks now, each little snippet we've read has been pretty tough to read. And I think today, I think this morning's passage is probably the worst we've seen. This is some really bleak stuff. The language in it, if you paid attention, is, it's extremely graphic. And it's this picture of death. It's a picture of mourning. He says, consider and call for the mourning women to come. And I, I learned reading this this week that that's, these mourning women were paid women who would come and mourn at funerals. So essentially God's saying, make your funeral arrangements. Make the plans because your death is on the horizon. Destruction is coming. He says, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field. That's tough. But the question is, what have the people done to deserve this? What is it that has brought such uh, wrath upon them? What is it that sums up 
uh, all of their sin, that they require this type of devastation and destruction. What's the horrible thing they've done? Well, verse 25, it tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. He says, the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. The thing that sums up Israel's sin, the thing that brought destruction, the thing that uh, had brought God's wrath was that their bodies were circumcised, but their, their hearts weren't. And at first glance, or at first listen, uh, that may seem like a problem that is for a specific time and place. Something that is, is confined to an ancient culture that really we, we can't relate to. But I hope what we see as we look at this this morning is that an uncircumcised heart, the issue of an uncircumcised heart is one that every one of us deals with. And one that, just like the nation of Judah, will ruin us if we don't see it. And so that's what I want us to do. I want us to to talk about this idea this morning. And first, I want us to see, what does that even mean? What is the meaning of an uncircumcised heart? What is the Bible trying to tell us when it uses that language? And then I want us to see, what is the symptoms of an uncircumcised heart? What are the signs that our hearts are like that? And then finally, what's the cure for an uncircumcised heart? How do we fix it? So let's, let's, first of all, try to figure out what this stuff means. What is the meaning of, of these, this term, uncircumcised heart? Well, I've mentioned this already. Our passage is tough. It's hard to listen to. I imagine when Jeremiah first spoke these words, it was shocking. But probably the most shocking part for Judah was not the parts that shock us, but it's this part towards the end where Jeremiah says, I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. Now, why would that part be so shocking? Well, those people, those those countries that are listed are some of the main bad guys of the Old Testament. Those are some of the main nations that were known enemies of God and enemies of Israel. And yet right in the middle of that list is Judah, is the name of God's people, the people who who supposedly were doing everything right, the ones that were the chosen people whose nation hadn't been destroyed. But here, their name's inserted right in the middle as people who are circumcised merely in the flesh. And thus, they are written in a list of people who are destined to be destroyed. And this isn't the first warning uh, that Jeremiah has even given them. We didn't read this in our study of the book, but in Jeremiah chapter 4, he makes the same accusation against them. He says in Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. God has been telling them that they need to circumcise their hearts. But what does that mean? Okay, so to understand it, we need to talk about 
what circumcision is in the first place. What is, what is circumcision? If you are familiar with scripture, you may recognize this is something we see first in the book of Genesis, all the way back at the beginning. Genesis chapter 17, God calls Abraham, uh, and he, he gives him this sign. He gives him this ritual sign of circumcision. And he say, essentially, the point of circumcision is this is a, a sign to identify Abraham and all his descendants as God's covenant people, as his special chosen people. It was a sign that Abraham and all the people who had come after him, including the people of Israel and the people of Judah, these people who are receiving the book of Jeremiah, it was a sign that those people belonged to God. It was an outward sign of a relational reality. So circumcision was this, the, the symbol that God had called these people and that he was in relationship with them. It was a sign of their subjection to him. It was a sign that, that they were his. But what had happened over the years, and by the time we get to this passage, was that the sign, the symbol, had gotten confused with the reality behind it. And people started to think, as long as I'm circumcised, that means I belong to God. Circumcision is the thing that represents my salvation. And so it ceased to be about something deeper, but instead it became this superstitious, religious ritual. It was empty religion. They said, this is what makes me okay. And that's what Jeremiah's point is at the end of this passage. It's that, that purely ritual circumcision is not only a useless thing, but it's deadly. That empty religion is not only useless, but it's deadly. Judah was now no different than all the other nations who practiced circumcision. Because circumcision, it wasn't unique to the, the people of Israel. These other nations did it as well, but for various different religious reasons. And he says, yours is now just as empty as theirs. So that's what's happening. God is condemning their empty religious observance. And I think we can all agree now, looking at that, that empty religious practices, that's not something unique to the problem, to the people of Judah. That's not something that we've left way behind in history, but that's something that we see all throughout history. We see it in the history of Israel. We see it when Jesus is dealing uh, in the Gospels with the Pharisees and the scribes. We see it in Paul's epistles as he's writing to the Judaizers and the circumcision party. And we see it now. We see it today in the church all the time. So why is that such a big deal, maybe is the question. Why is, why is, why is it such a big deal to, to practice these religious rituals? It seems like there are much worse things people can do, right? On the, the scale of sinful things, it seems like just following the rules is, is not that bad. Why is it that this, then, this uncircumcision is the thing that, that God says is is the summation of all their problems. Well, I think, firstly, it's, it's because of this. It's because religion, on its own, is one of the most effective ways for us to avoid God. Religion is one of the most effective ways that we have of 
avoiding God. Rule-making and rule-following on their own do absolutely nothing to bring us closer to God. But actually, it has the opposite effect on our lives. It has the effect of convincing us that we are okay when we're actually in a desperate state. I mean, let me just, let me just give you one example of this. Uh, something that happens pretty frequently. I'll be talking with a young couple, maybe a, an engaged couple, or maybe somebody who's just dating, and they'll ask me this question. How far can we go? How far is too far? Now, first of all, what's behind that question? We all know what's behind that question, right? What is the closest I can possibly get to sin without actually sinning, right? <laughs> Where's the line? Because I want to get right up as close to it as possible, but not any further. But what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says, flee sexual immorality. It says the exact opposite of that. And so here's the tricky thing. When we start to make rules and apply them, we actually end up lessening God's standard of holiness. Because I can tell that couple, and I often do, I often su suggest some things. I might say something like, don't do anything you wouldn't do with your sibling. <laughs> right? That's a pretty extreme limit. But I think it's fair. But here's the thing. There, a couple can take that advice, and they can start following that rule, and they can keep it, and they can convince themselves that they're good. And meanwhile, they can be burning with lust. They can be filled with all kinds of sin. But I've given them this law that they judge themselves by, and they think they're fine. By making God's command, by making God's standards into a set of rules... I've actually made them stop relying on God and start relying on themselves for holiness. Okay, so I don't want you to misunderstand me. Rules aren't bad, right? It's not bad to, to make some standards for yourself, but rules by themselves can't change you. Rules can't change your heart. That's what God means when he says to these people that they are circumcised merely in the flesh. What they have done is they have reduced God from a living God who had redeemed their lives, who had brought them out of slavery, who had chosen them to be his special people amongst all the people in the world, and instead they've made him into a simple set of religious rites. Instead of being the God who demanded their entire life, he was the God of a, some rules that they needed to follow. They said, I am good, not because God's chosen me, but because I'm circumcised. They said, I belong to God. God loves me because I follow the rules. I do what he asked me to do. And you know, in the church, we, we do this all the time, don't we? Don't we behave the exact same way? God loves me because I went to church this week. Because I read my Bible five times this week. Because I volunteer regularly around the community. That's why I'm good. And here's the difference. This is the difference between religion and, and the gospel. Religion says, God loves me because I deserve it. I've done what I'm supposed to do, and therefore, he owes it to me. But Jeremiah, the prophet, he says, though you are doing all of these things on the outside, your heart hasn't been touched. You don't know God. You've done these external requirements, 
but you have no relationship with him. And Jesus came preaching the same message. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he says basically the exact same thing to the self-righteous religious people of his day, right? The Pharisees and the scribes, the experts in the law. He says in the book of Matthew, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the crux of the issue here, folks. It's that this is the thing that we've been talking about all month, every week when we've looked at sin. Sin is more than just your actions. Sin goes deeper than what you do. It is about your heart. Sin's not just about doing bad things. It's also about doing good things for the wrong reasons. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were the best rule keepers, maybe some of the best rule keepers this world has ever seen. And today, their name is synonymous with sin. Why is that? Why, what made them so bad? Well, it was because the Pharisees were not keeping the law to please God. They weren't keeping the law to get closer to God, but they were keeping the law so that they, they didn't need God. They were keeping the law so they wouldn't need a Savior, so that they could stand before God and claim, I've, I've done everything you've asked. I'm, I'm good, thanks. I don't need salvation because I'm righteous right here on my own. That's what it means to have circumcised flesh and an uncircumcised heart. It means saying, I've kept the rules and therefore I'm holy. But Jeremiah tells us here that instead of becoming more holy, what happens when we make these laws and follow these rules and, and, and base our life on that is that it actually makes us into the least holy people on earth. We don't get closer to God. We become some of the people who are most difficult to save, who are farthest from salvation. So that's what it means. That is an uncircumcised heart. How do we know if we have one? How do you know if I'm, I'm speaking to you today? What's the diagnosis? What are the clues? Well, this passage tells us, let's, let's look again. Uh, it tells us that one of the keys to diagnosing the, the status of our hearts is to ask the question, what do we boast in? Verse 23, which just blew. Okay, verse 23, it says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So we need to remember the context of our passage. The first two-thirds of the passage today is about death. It's about destruction. It's about this impending doom for these people. God tells them that your life is, is almost over. You're going to be destroyed. You are going to die. And as you're reading the flow of the text, it kind of is confusing, honestly, that this verse pops in here. Why, why would God then warn them not to boast 
in, in riches and wisdom and might. What's the connection there? As I've looked at it, I've started to think that it's very, actually very insightful. Because isn't this what happens to us? Isn't this our nature? What happens to us when, we, when somebody starts to call us out on our sin? When someone starts to, to confront us with the shortcomings in our lives? Isn't this what we do? Don't we start to, to build up this great resume of all the good things we've done that they've forgotten about? Right? Here's what makes me good. What about this? What about this? Don't we try to build up a record of our own righteousness when somebody accuses us of our sin? That's what I, our response is normally. I think the natural human response to the specter of our sin and, and death is to boast. To boast of our strength. We boast of, of all the things that give our lives value and that we think should make our lives valuable to others and maybe even valuable to God. So what are the things he singles out here? He says, wisdom, might, and riches. You know, this book was written thousands of years ago. It's kind of amazing that, that some text that is so old, if you were going to write it for today, what would you change? Is it, aren't these still the same three things that we struggle with? People haven't changed all that much. Wisdom, right? What does our society look to for, for someone to be valuable? Intelligence. Power. Might. Strength. Youth and beauty, right? We still look to those things. Money. Those are the things that we lean on, but maybe as I'm listing those three, some of you are like, well, good, I'm off the hook. All right, I don't have any of those things. <laughs> I know, I was, I was feeling that way, but then I remembered. That's not all we boast in. And that's not, these, these things can, can creep in in all sorts of ways. We boast in pretty much anything that we think gives us value. It could... The, the verse have kept going to say, you know, let not the, the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the hard worker boast in their effort. Let not the theologian boast in their good doctrine. Let not the parents boast in their successful children. Let not the student boast in their GPA. Let not the hipster boast in their ironic mustaches. Let not the punctual person boast in their schedule keeping. Let not the budgeter boast in their good planning. Let not the tidy person boast in their cleanliness. Let not the community activist boast in their service. Let not the bike rider boast in their environmental consciousness. You know, we, it's amazing the things that we boast about, but we do. Now, on our own, those things might seem really small. Those examples might seem like well, those are really nitpicky things. But what's behind them? What's behind those is the instinct that says, I am good because I behave this way. I am good because I do these things. I'm better than others because this is true of me. But what's really going on there is, is we're trying to hide something. <laughs> when we start to boast in these things, what we're really doing is trying to minimize the guilt we feel in other areas of our life. We're trying to, to minimize our sin and instead lift ourselves up on, these shaky, on this shaky ground to say, here's what makes me good. Those things we boast in reveal the status of our hearts. Is our righteousness based in God, or is it based in something else? Now, I want to just pause here uh, 
and address specifically the Christians in this room, because I, I know there are many of you here. <laughs> because I think for, as we listen to a sermon like this, we can, we can hear this theology and just kind of let it wash over us. We know the right answers here, don't we? We know, of course, our righteousness is only in Christ, as I'm, even if I'm, as I'm speaking the words. We can sing the song, in Christ alone my hope is found. We know that. We can repeat the doctrine. We can maybe even say some of these catechisms that we sometimes study. And I think that might be our Christian equivalent of of physical circumcision. I think that might be the equivalent of being circumcised in the flesh, that we know all the right things. But we can have all the right theology We can know all the correct answers and still have something else in our life that's functioning as our Savior. So just ask yourself, if if you're a Christian in this room, just ask yourself this question, what what do I need to be happy? What is it that makes me a credible person? What makes me worth something? Is the, is the thing you're thinking of, is it really Christ alone? Or is it Christ and a good job? Christ and financial freedom? Christ and getting my kids into the, the right college someday? Or, or Christ plus being able to say I've read my Bible? And, uh, or, or Christ and a, and a good degree? Or, or Christ and first chair in the symphony? Now listen... When I was planning this church, I never imagined that I would have the kind of church where the example of first chair in the symphony would like, uh, be applicable to a sizable group of the population. But, but yes, that, that's one of the things. What are you boasting in? What are you really boasting in? What are you looking to to make you good? Verse 24, it says, Let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. You see the difference in the two lists? Wisdom, might, riches, versus love, justice, righteousness. I think the difference between the two, two lists is eternity. The picture of death that we see in this passage, it's bleak. It it talks about death creeping in through the windows. It says death has come into the windows. It's entered our palaces. It's cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Dead bodies fall like dung in the open field, like sheaves after the reaper with none to gather them. It's this picture of death taking everyone, old And young, it's a picture of bodies laying out in the open because there's no one left to bury them, the destruction so great. But that vivid imagery, I think, makes a point. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about how powerful you become or how rich you get. None of that is going to matter a thousand years from now. The sign of an uncircumcised heart is what we boast in. Are we finding our worth in the things that are going to die with us? Are we trusting in our temporary accomplishments or even our empty religious rituals? Or are we finding life in God? 
So how do we get a circumcised heart? We've talked about the, the problems of, of an uncircumcised heart. We've said that, that what that means is it's, it's a way to avoid God, and it's a way to replace God. We avoid God with this empty rule-keeping, and we replace God by centering our lives upon these things that don't last, saying that these things are what makes me good. But how do we move on from that? How do we change? How do we circumcise our hearts? All right, well, let's talk about circumcision again for just a second. I mentioned earlier that circumcision was given in the book of Genesis as a sign that, is, that represented how Israel had been chosen by God, that the people of Israel belonged to him. But you ever think about why that sign? Why circumcision, right? I mean, of all the things that God could use to set apart his people, I mean, couldn't he have given them t-shirts or something? You know, maybe some name tags? Circumcision. I mean, that's pretty extreme. But there's a meaning behind it. And I think it really helps us, honestly, if we start to understand what's going on with that. Circumcision is a covenant sign. And covenants, what they are, they're, they're promises, they're contracts, usually between a king and his subjects, a king and vassals. And the way these contracts were written, these covenant promises were made, it would be like a king saying, I'm going to protect you people with my power, and you all are going to, to give a portion of your crops to me. And that's the deal we're going to make. And then affixed to the requirements of the contract would be a list of blessings and curses. This was part of the form. Here's all the good things that will happen if you keep your end of the bargain. And then it would be followed up with, here's all the bad things that will happen if you don't. And usually those lists could get pretty grim. And then what the king and the, the, the head of these subjects would do in making the, the promise is they would act out the curse. They would act out the bad things that would happen. And so sometimes it might look like taking a calf and slaughtering the calf and splitting it apart and then walking in between it. And they would symbolize, you know, if I break this covenant, would this kind of judgment be on me? Would I be cut in half just like that? So circumcision it's that kind of sign. It's a covenant sign. It's a sign between, it's a promise between God and his people. And it was meant to remind them of this promise. First of all, it was meant to remind them that God had chosen Abraham by sheer grace. That he'd chosen them not based on anything that he had done to deserve it, but that God had rescued him. And that they owed everything to him. Circumcision accompanied Abraham's promise then to follow God. To live a life in obedience to him. And then this sign, it was all about the costliness of sin. Circumcision is a sign all about the costliness of sin. Because it is a bloody sign. And the message in there, the, the symbolism in there, it's about being cut off. It's showing us the curse that comes with disobedience to God. It means this. It means there will be a cost for our failure to follow God. 
It's telling us that disobedient and unholy and unrighteous people cannot remain in a relationship with a holy God. And if they rebelled against him, what was going to happen? They were going to be cut off. They were going to be separated from him. And so, these Israelites, these, these people in the nation of Judah, their very circumcision, their physical state was actually a testimony against them. That's kind of the message that Jeremiah is getting at. Their circumcision is a testimony against their lives. And let's bring it back to us. See, it's the same with our hearts. The uncircumcised heart, it says this. It says, God loves me because I deserve it. God loves me because I've done all the things I'm supposed to do. God loves me because I'm, I'm relatively good and, and here's some good things about me. But scripture says, no one deserves salvation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, what everyone deserves is to be cut off. No one deserves to, to know God. No one deserves to be redeemed by him. And that's terrible news for us. It's especially terrible news for, for those of us who aren't descendants of Abraham, who were never even a part of the people who had been chosen to be God's special people. But there's good news here. The good news is this. The circumcision of the flesh, it can't save us. This little ritual, this rite, can't save us. But the thing that can, the thing that Jeremiah is calling for, a circumcision of the heart, that's been made available to everyone. That is now open to all of us. Our New Testament reading this morning, uh, if you were able to, to listen to it, it was from Colossians chapter 2. And here's what it says. It says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, so that's really confusing theological language, but let me try to break it down. Paul calls faith in Christ a circumcision made without hands. He says that's what it is. The circumcision of the heart is faith in Christ. And he says, how do we get that? He says we get it by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, what does that even mean? The circumcision of Christ. It's actually, it, it sounds maybe more confusing than it actually is. It's the gospel message. It means that all people, all of us, deserve God's wrath for sin. For sin. Not just for the bad things that we've done but for the good things that we've done with bad motives, for the good things that we've done to try to build up our own record of righteousness. We deserve God's wrath for our false righteousness. But God, in his love, sent a Savior. God the Son became a man, and he lived a life in our place. He lived a life in perfect, unwavering, heart-level obedience and fidelity to God. And he died on the cross in our place. He died as our substitute. The message of the circumcision of Christ is that. Christ got the punishment that we deserved. Christ on the cross took on that covenant sign. Christ in that moment when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was cut off. Christ was the fulfillment of that bloody sign. 
And it wasn't just for the people of Israel. It wasn't just for the people of Judah who had broken the covenant, but it was for everyone. Paul says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what the gospel is, that Christ has fulfilled this demand for us. And now our passage from Jeremiah, it begins with this call to mourn. It begins with a call for the people of Judah to see their sin and mourn and prepare for their death. Because that's what happens when you break the law. But in the gospel, Christ comes and he gives us a new message. He gives us this message that says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn their sin, for they will be made righteous. And so that's, that's what I want us to see this morning as we think about this passage. If you see your sin today, if you recognize some of the stuff I've been saying is true of, of you, that you have been professing a faith that you don't really believe, that you have been basing your life on these things that can't last. If that's you, I want to invite you to mourn. I want to invite you to, to repent of your sin and turn to Christ and see the one who has taken that punishment for you. And allow that to transform you and make you new. Make that change you from the kind of person who says, I deserve this. I do good things so God will save me. To the kind of person who says, God has saved me. And now by his grace, I can do good things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift that you've given us in the cross. And I thank you for these covenant promises that you've made, that even in the moment when you gave this promise to Abraham, you had already laid out your plans for our salvation. That even before you gave this promise, you told him that the whole nation was going to be blessed through one of his descendants. And Lord, I thank you that that has come true in Christ. I thank you that he's the only one that can be our boast. And Lord, I thank you that when we make you the focus of our lives, when you become the thing we boast in, it transforms everything else about us. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who don't know you. I pray for those here this morning who have lived as if they don't know you. And I pray both would find the truth of the gospel and the beauty of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.